Hello, and welcome back to the Atlantic World. Episode 9, The Lost Colonies of Virginia, Part 2. So, welcome back. It's been a few weeks since our last episode, and as always, life tends to get in the way. Between going back to work and navigating a global pandemic, it's going to get in the way of our creative pursuits, but at least we're getting back on track this week. Before we get started, though, there's just a few things I want to address. Firstly, I'm revising the distribution plan of this series. Weekly or even fortnightly episodes are resulting in scripts that are too short, too fast-paced, and gloss over a lot of important points in the stories that I'm telling. Since this is all still very much a personal hobby for me, I'm going to just release shows when they're good and ready. Hopefully, this means I can put more detail into the scripts and not get rushed into putting out an episode just to make a deadline. The delivery will still be on a regular basis, but I just don't like being constrained by word limits or time limits. And that also means I can dig into some of the niche stuff that would normally not make it into an episode. Scripts normally run up to about 5,000 words, then I have to cut them down to about 3,000 to make a 30-minute episode. But as my dissertation supervisor aptly pointed out, my writing style is, and I quote, flowery and verbose, which I immediately took as an absolute win. Point is, my writing and delivery doesn't work when it's shoehorned into smaller segments. This means episodes will be longer, more detailed, and hopefully that's okay with all of you. Secondly, I want to point out a few corrections that need to be made. As I'm sure you're aware, my own interpretation of history is limited by my own bias and scope of reading, and occasionally it's very likely that I'll miss a source or get something just straight up wrong. I'll do my best to make corrections when they're pointed out or I realise my mistakes. And unsurprisingly, a history podcast tends to garner listeners who are interested in history. So if you have a correction to point out, feel free to message me. Speaking of corrections, listener Travis pointed out from episode 3, The First People, that I mentioned the majority of Indian societies had no writing system. Now, this doesn't mean that they couldn't write. It's worth noting that the populations across pre-Columbian America were incredibly diverse, so they can't really be lumped together in such a sweeping statement. Like any society that barters or trades, Indian populations had to keep track of their goods and wares, and this was especially true in the highly mercantile and bureaucratic Inca Empire. They actually had a specific form of financial measurement called a quipu, which took the form of strings of beads tied together that was used to calculate and record everything from taxation and accounting to the imperial census and social standing. So thanks for pointing that one out, Travis. It's also worth pointing out in the last episode that I completely flumped the small matter of Skiko, Lane's hostage prior to the ambush on the War Council who I said was the son of Chief Pemisapan of the Sekatan. Turns out, I was dead wrong, and Skiko was the son of Chief Menatonan of the Chowanoks, a group who weren't super friendly towards the English, but were even less inclined to join Pemisapan's war against them. So, no idea how I got that one wrong. My bad. Anyway, now that's all cleared up, we can jump right back into where we left off. It's June 1586 
and the English fleet that hurriedly left Roanoke has arrived at Portsmouth. The relief felt by the survivors of the Roanoke expedition as they saw England's shores appear over the horizon must have been overwhelming. Those who originally set sail for America couldn't have been certain they would ever see their home country again. Ralph Lane, Thomas Harriot and their hundred or so colonists had been through quite an adventure, but their colony was an outright failure. To add insult to injury, hundreds of sketches, records and journals telling the story and situation of the first English colony were thrown overboard in the hurried evacuation to make a quicker escape leaving investors in London with less of a clear picture of what daily life was like in the colony. On top of that, there was no way to know that Raleigh's claim in Virginia hadn't been completely overrun by the many enemies his men had made. Sir Francis Drake, on the other hand, had a great time. He had returned not as the failed explorer, but as a military hero. War with Spain was almost a certainty, and he had spent the last year prizing away the Caribbean jewels in the Spanish crown. He had laid waste to the impregnable Santo Domingo, raided the naval bases of the Florida coast, and captured the Colombian city of Cartagena. As you can imagine, he was returning as quite the triumphant hero. Courtiers were eager to hear of Drake's victories, and not so eager to hear of Lane's failed evacuation. And now he had to go back to Walter Raleigh and face the music. We don't actually know what was said between the two men, but it's not hard to imagine the chewing out that he got from the man who endeavoured to remain in the Queen's good graces. Elizabeth had gambled her name and reputation on the Virginia Project, and the loss of the settlement put Raleigh's position in court in jeopardy, a position on which all of his current wealth and prestige rested. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised at the outcome. The Indians weren't exactly eager to prop up a settlement of Englishmen who couldn't work the land themselves, and the local terrain was atrocious for sailing ships. The lagoons sheltered behind the outer banks provided safety from prying Spanish eyes, yes, but were shallow and dangerous to navigate. The stonemasons and smiths who had hoped to ply their trade in America's rich mineral reserves found nothing but pebbles to work with and were less than eager to turn their hands to farming once they realised their get-rich-quick scheme wasn't immediately available. Compared to Spain's impressive walled Caribbean cities, the English could erect nothing more than a glorified sandcastle. Perhaps greater riches may be found inland, but the impregnable terrain and suspicious tribes made overland expeditions a massive gamble. Lane's final assessment of American colonisation had become particularly blunt writing that the discovery of a good mine or a passage to the South Sea, and nothing else, can bring this country to be inhabited by our nation. Raleigh now had to contend with keeping his claim intact, but rumours were spreading from survivors who felt that they had been misled into a year of misery and hardship. People had died, investors had been bankrupted, and these grievances began to appear in the courts too. Little action was actually taken, but society was rife with tales of the horrors of American living. Almost immediately, Raleigh set Harriet to work on his A Brief and True Report of the Newfound Land of Virginia. The work didn't detail the history of the first colony so much as it expanded upon Harriet's discoveries in America, but it was definitely geared towards reviving interest amongst London's merchants to keep faith in the colonisation of Virginia. 
Harriet worked with Manteo, who had also chosen to return to England, to flesh out the work that had been lost in the hurried departure. At the time of its publication, England was undergoing an early phase of modernisation, characterised largely by abundant gluttony. New tastes and new luxuries had poured into Europe and the increasingly urban population seemingly wasn't in the mood to survive on a plate of acorns. Elizabethan medicine was still primitive and centred largely around the balance of bodily humours. The drowsiness that came from overindulging on a meat-based diet was described by physicians as a watery head, and so the counterbalance would be something hot and dry. Nothing of the sort existed in Elizabethan England at the time, until Harriet rested the best case for saving Raleigh's American project on a distinct and strange herb, one that could also offer a suitably Elizabethan approach to resolving the growing dietary crisis, tobacco. We all know that Virginia became tobacco country. The plant was well known to the Spanish by now and frequently used ceremonially by Indians. Attraction to the product came in the way it was consumed. Rather than with more food or drink as most herbal mixtures of the day were prepared, it was inhaled and said to provide immediate relief. This knowledge was nothing groundbreaking to the English. Some physicians already sold the product in London's markets but at an incredibly restricted level. It wasn't exactly readily available for everyone to try. Raleigh's Virginia, Harriet predicted, would flood the country's markets with the stuff, whilst denying the Spanish monopoly on the trade. The men who had returned had all taken up the practice as well whilst in Virginia, and were steadfastly convinced of the product's benefits, and genuinely believed it to be the solution to everything from constipation to infection. There were lots of other goods in America for England to barter with, but tobacco would be king, and was about the only thing able to put credit back in Raleigh's account. Sir Richard Grenville was late. He'd arrived in Roanoke with 400 soldiers and had enough provisions to last a year, but the small colony he'd left behind was now deserted. A hurricane had swept through the area in the days following Lane's evacuation, leaving the place in a torn down mess, but it was immediately obvious that Lane had evacuated. There was no sign of a struggle bar two corpses, one Indian and one English, hanging from a tree. This put Grenville in a bit of a pickle. He could sail home immediately, but that would involve forsaking Raleigh's claim to the Indians, or worse, the Spanish. Instead, he appointed a detail of 15 soldiers under the leadership of a barnstaple man named Master Coffin to garrison the area. Meanwhile, he would sail home and seek further instructions. The 15 men left behind had no idea when they would see another English ship, or if they'd ever see England again. For Raleigh to learn that Grenville had landed a garrison was a bit of a shock. Technically, he was solely responsible for the men's welfare whilst they were 3,000 miles away, but he couldn't afford to organise any transatlantic relief missions. Fortunately, the arrest and execution of Anthony Babington, a Catholic conspirator in a plot to murder Elizabeth, resulted in the confiscation of his several massive estates across the country. It shouldn't come as a surprise who the Queen was going to give all this newfound property to. And before he knew it, Raleigh had capital to weigh against his colonial ambitions once more. The first task would be locating the right spot to settle. Raleigh had no intention to resettle Roanoke, with enough evidence to prove it all hassle and no reward. 
His plan was to pick up the garrison at Roanoke and then sail towards Chesapeake. Reports had already been made of the area, a fair ways north confirming a more suitable location for a colony. The second task would be finding men to build this second colony. Ralph Lane was understandably eager to never see the continent again, and Thomas Harriet was now responsible for overseeing Raleigh's estates in Ireland. John White had been on the first expedition, and he had actually enjoyed his year on Roanoke. He was an artist and spent his time in America producing a plethora of accurate maps of the region, and he'd already made it abundantly clear to Raleigh of his determination to lead any future colonies. And so, John White was nominated the next governor of Virginia. Unlike the military men that preceded him, White's background was hardly as rough and ready. No mention of him exists before 1580, until he suddenly appears in the records of a London Painters Guild. He had begun to make a name for himself in art communities in the Low Countries, and was a proponent of the new technique of watercolour painting, something shunned by London's high portrait artists. But White wasn't eager to portray London's elite, and he frequented areas where he could hear stories of exploration and adventure, furnishing him with a desire to paint the mysterious flora, fauna and people of America. Despite all this credit to his artistic skills, there wasn't much on his CV pegging him as the ideal leader of an overseas colony, a task that was known all too well by now to be a back-breaking endeavour. Regardless, three ships set sail from London in May 1587, heading for Portsmouth and then Plymouth to pick up their complement of settlers. The fleet consisted of the Lion, along with two small unnamed boats. It wasn't long into the voyage though before a power struggle began to open up between White and his principal navigator, Simon Fernandez, who had been the navigator for the original expedition and had earned himself the nickname of The Swine amongst the English crew. White's distrust was planted when the flyboat responsible for the colony's supplies disappeared off the coast of Portugal. White immediately blames Fernandez, but only in his private journal. The voyage proceeded with some more complications and delays around the Caribbean, before finally reaching the outer banks of North Carolina. Now familiar with the dangers of sailing along the outer banks, the Lion weighed anchor about two miles offshore and ferried White and his colonists out to the island so as to make contact with Grenville's garrison, dismantle the previous settlement, and then sail north for Chesapeake. But once disembarked, Fernandez made the quite audacious decision to inform White that he won't be allowing the colonists to reboard the ship. In fact, he wouldn't be taking the colonists anywhere near Chesapeake. Fernandez seems to have had enough with Raleigh's colonies and now had a fancy ship all to himself so that he could go privateering and plundering. For the colonists, they couldn't quite believe what they were hearing. Not only were they not going to Chesapeake, but they were going to be abandoned on the island associated with nothing but bad news since the first failed expedition. What's more is their governor and leader, John White, absolutely failed to do anything to counter Fernandez's treachery. He didn't quite know what to do, and didn't quite do anything to retake the ship given the treasure-hungry disposition of the crew. He resolved instead that the settlers, now totalling 112, would attempt to resettle Roanoke, abandoning all of the meticulous plans Raleigh had concocted for Chesapeake Bay. 
With the lion gradually getting smaller and smaller off in the distance, the settlers were rowed from the outer banks to Roanoke Island, unsure whether they would ever see an English ship again. Demoralised and shocked from the sudden turn of events, the company assembled on the island and endeavoured towards the site of the first colony, hoping to at least find Grenville's detachment in good health. The party made its way through the dense forest calling to any Englishman that may hear, but got nothing in return. It seemed to the colonists that the island was not occupied, not by the English, but more importantly, not by the Indians, leaving White to conclude that the garrison must have undertaken an expedition inland. As night approached, the settlers decided to spend the night on the shore, before attempting to press on inland and make for Roanoke's old fort, and they continued looking up and down the coast for any signs of the English soldiers. Just before sundown, White was alerted to a startling discovery. Half covered in the undergrowth of the tree line were the bones and armour of an English soldier, one of Grenville's 15 men. This must have been a major morale blow for the settlers, who now had to spend a sleepless night in what was certain to seem like hostile territory, with no defences to repel the island's hostile inhabitants. The next morning, the settlers made their way north to find what remained of the initial settlement. The company discovered a clearly abandoned camp, half reclaimed by the island as evidenced by the abundance of melon plants that had sprung up amidst the ramshackle houses that still stood. But White managed to rally his settlers and put every able body to work rebuilding the structures, which wasn't a greatly difficult task given the simplicity of Elizabethan construction techniques. The most rudimentary of houses could be built out of layers of dried earth, held in place by a modest timber frame, and within days the village had begun to take shape once more. In the following days, the supply boat that White assumed had been deliberately misled by Fernandez was sighted on the horizon, raising the hopes of the settlers even further as immediate starvation was no longer a pressing concern. With construction underway and morale improved, something bad was bound to happen. It was July, and one of White's assistants, George Howe, had decided to raise the settlers' spirits further by collecting crabs in the shallows of Pamlico Sound, north of the Roanoke settlement. It was a humid Virginia summer, and he had decided to wade out into the shallows without his cumbersome Elizabethan clothing to slow him down. Half-dressed and blissfully unaware, he had little idea that from the tree line he was being watched. Howe was now two miles from the nearest Englishman, alone and certainly in peril. He appears to have stumbled into the hunting grounds of some nearby tribesmen, who now found a far more valuable quarry in their sights. A snap of the reeds was all the warning Howe had, before realising that 16 men had their bows trained on him. 16 arrows hit their mark before Howe even had a chance to react, and leaving no room for error, the hunters beat his head repeatedly with their clubs before fleeing far into the forest. Howe's body was found later that day in what must have been a horrific discovery, and a terrifying reminder that all was not well and that certain death could befall the colonists at any moment. White dithered, as usual, but eventually came to a resolution with Manteo's aid. They would refrain from engaging in wanton acts of destruction as Lane had done, and reach out to the nearest village elders for a conference to revive the good relations that had existed when the English first arrived. 
The Indians, wary that Lane had used just such a ruse to attack Pemisapan the year before, were encouraged to wear visible identifiers that guaranteed their safety, and convene on August 8th at Roanoke. Manteo and his Croatoan brethren were all the English had left to call friends, and carried this message to the nearby chiefs. But August 8th came, and no meeting transpired. White was convinced this meant that the time for talk had passed. The tribes were seemingly not interested in peace with the English, and so his thoughts turned to counteracting any likely acts of revenge against their continued presence in America. He knew that on the mainland, just west of Roanoke, were the remains of Pemisapan's village, inhabited by the remaining Sekatan. This tribe was still hostile to the English, and most likely where Howe's attackers came from. White and Manteo took 24 English soldiers under the command of Captain Stafford, silently across the bay under cover of darkness, hoping to catch their enemy unaware and completely by surprise. Tensions ran high as the soldiers crept silently through the forest, bringing the village in range of their muskets. They could see some men around a fire who they took to be those who survived Lane's assault the previous year. Seizing the initiative, White's men opened fire, causing the Indians to retreat into the reeds. An intense skirmish ensued as the English were determined to flush them out and kill them. Why the men hadn't leaped to the defence of their village became apparent as Manteo let out a cry, realising that these were his Croatoan kinsmen, the same ones given badges of immunity by the English to ensure their safety just days before, and White immediately ordered his men to hold fire. A meeting was called, and after gathering up the wounded, the English sat down with the Croatoan to try and resolve what had happened. White explained that they were after those who had attacked George Howe, whilst the Croatoans explained that they had come to scavenge the food and supplies that would have expired had it been left to the elements. It appears that after killing Howe, his attackers had fled inland predicting just such an English counter-attack, and the Croatoans had moved in to gather what food and supplies they could from the abandoned village. Now, several Indians lay seriously wounded, bleeding from gunshot wounds delivered by their supposed allies. Of course, it was dark and the English couldn't have known that the Croatoans had made a move on the village, but it didn't matter. This was a diplomatic travesty that seriously harmed the English relations with their last remaining ally. Between these two groups was Manteo, torn between defending either his countrymen or his allies. Ultimately, it appears that he was now so involved in English affairs that he had to side with them. Both sides made efforts to redistribute the remaining supplies equally, and the English returned to Roanoke intending to keep a low profile, and hope that they hadn't finally screwed the pooch with the Croatoan. Three days later, the settlers prepared for a celebration. Manteo, once a member of the very Croatoan tribe the English had mistakenly attacked, was to be baptised, and recognised by the title Lord of Roanoke. The settlers just referred to him as Lord Manteo. On top of being a propaganda win for White, proving to his investors back in London that the Indians could be made into Christians, it also granted Manteo some feudal power over the Indian settlements. Most importantly, it made him an official representative of Queen Elizabeth in his dealings with the tribes. Five days after that, there was further cause for celebration, Governor White's daughter, Eleanor, and her husband, Ananias Dare, had a daughter of their own, the first English child to be born in America. 
They gave the child the name of the land they had found themselves in, Virginia Dare. Elizabethan child mortality rates weren't exactly great, and many babies were stillborn due to malnutrition, so the successful delivery of a healthy baby amidst such hardship as the settlers experienced was sure to be a relief to all. White was so delighted that it made him completely forget his recent setbacks, writing gleefully in what was until now a pretty dismal journal. On the very edge of all this celebration was Fernandez, who, oddly enough, had remained at anchor in his ship off the Carolina coast since his refusal to take the settlers any further towards Chesapeake. At first infuriating, the constant presence of the vessel began to unsettle the English. His haste to leave his passengers, he had claimed, was to leave more time for hunting Spanish galleons to plunder. That was four weeks ago now. The celebrations, having given way to the resumption of monotonous labour, made the settlers feel edgy, very aware that their last lifeline to England was hovering just offshore and out of reach. Governor White was convinced that this was Fernandez taking a weird pleasure in taunting the colonists. Given that a storm had swept the ship out to sea, only for it to reappear a week later and drop anchor in the exact same position. What's worse was the realisation that no one had been made aware that the settlers were on Roanoke Island and not in Chesapeake Bay as planned. This meant that all the planned resupply missions and future colonists would arrive, presumably perplexed, to a vacant shore some 100 miles north, whilst the original settlers would surely starve. Realising their plight, and perhaps eager to rid themselves of his lacklustre leadership, the settlers petitioned that White return to England, and make the colonists' situation known to Raleigh. Naturally, White didn't want to leave his pet project, either for fear of leaving his new family behind or for fear of what the tabloids in England would make of him, abandoning his charges. But Fernandez, having been convinced to convey a messenger to England, suddenly announced that he would depart shortly and that if the settlers couldn't decide then they would miss their chance. So the settlers played on White's vulnerability for praise, claiming that only he could make the journey and wrangle with English political circles enough to rescue them. After much cajoling and a solemn oath that his possessions in Virginia would be safeguarded until his return, White was convinced to set sail for home, acutely aware that his sudden reappearance in England would require a lot of explaining to Raleigh. It is without a doubt that White was the poorest choice for leadership. He had made more enemies amongst the Indians than friends, he had been kicked out by his own settlers and had been absolutely indecisive in the face of what was effectively a mutiny from his navigator resulting in the colonial venture basing itself entirely off course and placing the entire project in financial and physical danger. His journal fails to mention any designs for the colony in his absence and gives no appointments of leadership, only stating that the settlers intended to remove 50 miles further up into the main. This is characteristically confusing and ambiguous as it seemingly implies that the colonists were intending to attempt to relocate, which would defeat the purpose of his setting sail for England in the first place. The only clear instruction he left was A secret token agreed between them and me to write or carve on the trees or posts of the doors the name of the place where they should be seated. But if they should happen to be distressed in any of those places, that then they should carve over the letters or name a cross. It's worth noting that, as we've clearly seen, White was not a straight shooter, even at the best of times, so it wouldn't be surprising if the colonists misinterpreted his instructions or just neglected to follow them properly. The governor might have also paid more attention to detail with these scraps of information, 
had he known that they would be the only clues in a mystery that would last for centuries. White was relieved that he was to set sail on the smaller flyboat captained by Edward Spicer, rather than on the Lion with Fernandez, who was less than pleased that White was the emissary of choice the settlers had dispatched. But disaster struck the flyboat when the anchor, stuck on the seabed, ripped off the capstan when attempting to set sail, sending a great mass of timber and metal spinning wildly out of control, crushing several sailors and scattering others overboard. It wasn't until they cut the anchor loose that they were able to regain control of the vessel, but several of the sailors were seriously injured and the vessel itself had suffered some damage, which wasn't a great start for a transatlantic crossing. Despite these setbacks, they managed to sail with the Lion as far as the Azores, where Fernandez, surprise surprise, announced that they were on their own from there because he was going, you guessed it, privateering. The flyboat had been at sea a month and was dangerously ill-provisioned for what would be another couple weeks sailing at least. The journey was slow going, against dwindling food supplies and a south blowing storm whisking them further from their destination, two men died out of the fifteen aboard, and only five men had avoided injury on their departure. But on the 16th of October, 1587, the flyboat caught sight of the distant Irish coast. They abandoned the flyboat on the western shores of Ireland before White managed to secure passage to Southampton. After what must have been the worst summer holiday ever, he was back in England. On his return to England, White was met with bad news. Whilst in America, tensions with Spain were reaching new heights, and England was poised to defend against invasion. Queen Elizabeth had ordered a general stay of shipping as all available seaworthy vessels would be needed to defend England's coast from the reported invincible armada being assembled by King Philip II. The Armada was a military venture, but more importantly was to be a symbolic clash of the Protestant and Catholic worlds. If Philip could not successfully invade England and overthrow Elizabeth, he would neutralise the English navy, blockade the islands and press for Catholic freedoms in England whilst drawing out reparations for the costly war in the Netherlands. The Pope called the invasion a crusade, expecting substantial support from a rising of English Catholics against their Anglican masters. Despite skirmishes from both sides attempting to chip away at the other's naval power, it seemed like a decisive clash was the only way to settle affairs. Meanwhile, White reported to Raleigh, who was presumably furious that his colony had once again been trapped on Roanoke, revealing that the first supply ship had already left and was bound for Chesapeake. But realising that he couldn't simply abandon Roanoke, he promised a second ship to set sail with all the necessities needed for his colonists, then followed by a much larger fleet under Sir Richard Grenville to reinforce the settlement. He was convinced his ventures fell outside of the scope of government, and was confident he'd be able to convince his queen of the importance of the mission. The captain of the first ship had refused to set sail for fear of Spanish interception, and Grenville's fleet on the eve of its departure had been stalled, only to be met with news that Raleigh had been overruled, and that the general stay of shipping would be upheld. Instead, Grenville was called upon to join Sir Francis Drake in Plymouth, where the English fleet was assembling. The good news was that two smaller vessels amongst Grenville's fleet, named the Brave and the Roe, 
were not necessary for the defence and could still be used at his leisure. These were modest ships around 30 tonnes, not meant to cross the Atlantic without a larger escort and had to ferry 15 settlers and their supplies along with enough provisions for the voyage, which would be arduous in such small craft. White had no alternative though and had to set sail for the relief of his colonists. It wasn't long before such easy prey was intercepted by French pirates and boarded, with the much smaller English crew capitulating to their attackers after a fierce battle. The French spared the crew, but took with them all of the supplies intended for Roanoke, so much so that one of the French ships reportedly capsized under the weight of their prize. Without anything to deliver to the settlers, both ships returned to England. In the words of White, he believed that the colonists would be, quote, Not a little distressed. Nine months had passed with no resupply missions reaching Roanoke. The chances of him getting another mission out were practically null at this point. The French and Spanish were upping their assaults on English shipping as the threat of invasion loomed ever larger, the chaos of war being the best time to take up high seas pillaging as a hobby. Raleigh was now more focused on the task of organising a defence than ever, as the general belief was that the Spanish would mount an invasion in his home turf in the West Country, led entirely by Philip II's most elite soldiers. He was tasked by Elizabeth with overseeing the defence of Cornwall and Devon, and he brought Grenville and Lane back into the picture to assist him. The three men spent their days mustering troops, inspecting fortifications and discussing ship formations. No one had any time at all to focus on what was going on in America, because on Friday 19th of July 1588 at about 3pm, a coastal sentry at the Lizard Peninsula in West Cornwall caught sight of the Armada, and it must have been a gut-wrenching sight. 130 ships appearing over the horizon, the largest fleet ever to reach England, causing beacons across the South English coast to burst into flame, carrying the message back to the capital that the dreaded day had finally come. As the news spread across the country, southern ports fought against the winds to bring their non-military vessels into the safety of their harbours. Commanders anxiously attempted to anticipate where the Spanish would bombard and make landfall, and the coast was sent into a frenzied panic. The Spanish made no intention of landing, instead sailing further down the coast, clearly expecting to force a decisive clash that would free the channel up for Spanish reinforcements. English ships tailed the fleet as it went, attempting to skirmish when the opportunity arose, but it was clear that the West Country was not in immediate danger, and so the various captains and commanders, Raleigh included, boarded their vessels and made sail to rejoin the fleet and prepare for battle. As we know, the Spanish invasion of England never transpired. Poor winds hampered the Spanish ability to dominate the wild waters of the Channel, and their inability to close with the English fleet restricted their desire to engage in close-quarter fighting, where the Spanish navy truly shined. Instead, Drake and his fleet kept a superior windward position and bombarded the Armada from afar. The Spanish were pushed back to the coast of Flanders, unable to close with the nimble English vessels even when the wind was in their favour. To counter this, the fleet penned themselves up in a tightly packed defensive formation at the Dutch coast allowing multiple ships to fire on one English vessel at a time. To dislodge the Armada, the English dispatched eight fireships in their direction. 
These were ships that had usually taken too much damage or were outdated, so they were no great loss. They were then filled with brimstone, tar and gunpowder, satellite and allowed to drift into enemy formations. No Spanish ships were burned, but it caused enough panic to break apart their defensive formation and scatter the armada. The final clash came off the coast of Gravelines in the Spanish Netherlands, which the English had reserved their heavy shot and powder for. English gunners were far more skilled than their Spanish counterparts at long range, and the armada came under constant bombardment, killing gunnery crews and forcing marines to operate the Spanish heavy guns, for which they had no training. Panic soon set in as galleons began to take on water from the damage they'd suffered, and just like that, the Spanish Armada was defeated. Stragglers from the fleet were pursued around the coast of Scotland and Ireland where many ships made an aborted landfall, with any vessel still seaworthy having to make the long arduous journey back to Spain pursued by the English Navy. In all, more than half of the Armada was destroyed. Elizabeth was over the moon. This was an outstanding victory for her, as the Spanish had been the dominant naval power for the last century without a doubt. And now she had shown to all of her Catholic adversaries in Europe that England was more than capable of defending its shores. Now she could lay uncontested claim to North America. By March 1589, 19 months after he had left Roanoke, John White was still in England. Walter Raleigh had been off in Ireland fending off counterattacks by the remnants of the Spanish fleet, and all communication between the two men had devolved to discussing financials, which was not a good sign. £10,000 a year to fund a colony, £2,000 per ship, of which he'd sent 18, and the cost of outfitting these ships a further £10,000, totalling around 56000 Adjusted for inflation, that's around £18,820,000 in today's money for just one year of a colony, and that doesn't even include the costs of the earlier expedition which had also failed. But White managed finally to set sail in March 1590, two years and six months since he had left his family in Virginia. He had received no news given that there was no possible way for them to contact England, and had no idea if anyone would be left alive. The expedition fielded two ships and was under the command of the brilliantly named duo of Captain Cock and Captain Spicer. Once more, the journey was full of privateering and plunder, taking a whole four months to reach North America, by which point White was in a state of utter excitement, climbing up the mast to get a better look as they approached the outer banks and claimed that he could see smoke signals rising from the island. This was the usual way of communicating with an approaching ship. Unable to make it to land until the seas had calmed enough for rowboats, the English fired off cannon shot in succession to let the settlers know that they were coming, whilst White spent a night in a frenzy of excitement organising details of the landing party. Rowing to the island straight up sucked. The seas had not calmed much, but White had waited for this moment so long he couldn't wait it out any longer. The crew noticed that a second smoke plume had risen further down the banks, and assumed it was the settlers marking a safe place to come ashore, or warn of possible danger. In the end, the currents were so powerful that the exhausted crew hauled up anywhere they could on the dunes, before making the rest of the journey by foot to where they had sighted the second smoke plume. 
what they found was nothing. No fire had been made by any person. Instead, they reported that a recent lightning strike had scorched some of the undergrowth. Exhausted, and realising they had rode and walked all that way for nothing, and with the sun now setting, the party agreed the best thing to do was return to the safety of their ships and try again in the morning. The next day, the waters were even more treacherous, and stiff winds threatened to veer any rowboats way off course, leading to further delays as an anxious White sat around and complained in his journal again. Nevertheless, Cock and White made it to the coast after nearly sinking and having to furiously bail out water from their tiny rowboat. The second boat, containing Captain Spicer and his crew, was seen struggling against the surf, only to be flipped over and dashed on the rocky shoals, sending the captain and his crew into the depths. White stood aghast at the tragedy, but Captain Cock immediately pushed his rowboat out to make an attempt to rescue his fellow mariners, who were now struggling against the fierce riptide. He managed to save four mariners, but Spicer and many of his chief assistants were beyond rescue. To the sailors, it just convinced them that all the horrible stuff they'd heard about this godforsaken island must be true. That America is a remorseless and dangerous wilderness for clueless Europeans. White was forced to return to the ships for another anxious night and began to realise that something was amiss. Surely the settlers would have come rushing to greet their countrymen by now. The next morning, Fresh tracks in the sand vindicated the decision to stay aboard the ships, as Indian hunters had been to investigate the landing site. White's party began a search for any sign of the settlers, paying particular attention to the sign they had agreed to leave behind, should they have moved to a different area. The woodlands proved difficult to navigate, but before long, one of the men shouted that he'd found something etched to a tree. White rushed over to find the letters C-R-O carved into its trunk. He fell to his knees in praise, assured that this meant his settlers were indeed alive, and surmised that they had removed themselves to Croatoan Island. There was no cross accompanying the letters, which also meant that there was no immediate danger facing the colonists, but the letters appeared to be hastily cut into the tree, and the word itself was half complete. After finding no more clues, the party decided to head inland to the settlement. The village was clearly abandoned and had been for quite a while. The houses had been taken down and some of the buildings were still collapsed. The palisade remained largely intact though, and there was no immediate signs of a struggle taking place. On the bare trunk of a tree forming part of the fort entrance, was the last message the Roanoke settlers would leave to their English brethren. The word Croatoan, finely and patiently carved into the wood, again with no cross to indicate distress. This was a great relief to White. Though he wouldn't be immediately reunited with his family, it assured him that they were in no danger, and had indeed planned to relocate to Croatoan Island. This left the English with some questions. Croatoan Island was poorly defended and barren whilst the agreed plan had been to move north. Questions continued to arise as the men searched the camp. The site was littered with iron and lead bars which were needed to make ammunition for their muskets, something an Englishman would surely be unlikely to part with. After a more thorough inspection, White's belongings were found, which the settlers had sworn to secure. 
but it appeared that someone had returned, dug them up, rifled through his valuables and left his weapons and armour to rust. Now these are things that an Englishman trapped in America would probably want, so White concluded that the Indians of the area must have come to investigate after the settlers had departed and combed through to scavenge what they could. Things that were of no interest to them, or of no use, were simply left behind. However, Captain Cock, aware that a storm was fast approaching, ordered a recall to the ships, where the English spent a sleepless night being battered by fierce winds and fierce waves. The next morning, they endeavoured to sail to Croatoan to investigate, but no sooner had they set sail than the winds rushed up again and nearly caused the vessel to be caught in the shallows. The winds had caused three of the ship's anchors to break, and with only one remaining, all mariners aboard agreed that they should relocate to the Caribbean and wait for the spring to resume their expedition, something to which White reluctantly agreed. But the journey to the Caribbean never happened because of strong winds continuing to blow the ship east across the Atlantic, unable to steer south for the Caribbean until they reached the Azores and the coast of Europe. White returned to Plymouth, completely and utterly defeated. His colonial project had been a perfect storm of setback after setback, not helped at all by his lack of authority and indecisive nature. For all his attempts, the man was thoroughly broken. He knew he could never return to America, he would certainly never see his family again. All he could do was pass on his findings to others, hoping that in the future some clarity could be brought to bear on the colonists' fate. John White resettled in Ireland, and spent his days ruminating on the ill events that had defined his governorship. He maintained a hope that his daughter and granddaughter were still alive in the American wilderness, but doubted he would ever see them again. Three and a half years had consumed his life with the business of governing a colony, and most of that time had been spent helplessly in England, constantly concerned for his reputation and the well-being of his family. The summary of the expedition was a gross financial disaster. The final cost was in the tens of millions in modern currency. The human cost was also staggering for the time, if not for the hundred English lives lost, than for the gruesome way in which they met an end in early America. If it wasn't from illness or starvation, then it was from an arrow or a club, normally resulting from some incompetent and overzealously militaristic leadership, keen to put the Indians in their place. Diplomatically, the expeditions had made more enemies than friends amongst the tribes, and thrown the political stability of several groups into chaos, following the deaths of chiefs and elders in the wake of first contact. Ralph Lane similarly settled in Ireland, lending his hand to suppressing rebellions and overseeing English garrisons. Richard Grenville ended his career in combat against the Spanish, taking his lone ship against 53 Spanish vessels until both he and his ship were literally shot to pieces. Thomas Harriot and Walter Raleigh retained an interest in America, but it would be a while before they set their sights westward again. We'll pick up with these two again once the next attempt to colonise America gets underway, but in the meantime Harriet continued his interest in algebra, 
whilst Raleigh continued to navigate the strange world of Elizabethan court intrigue. As for the colonists, many studies claim to confirm one theory or the other, whether their fate was one of gruesome murder or tribal integration, it's a subject of conjecture. No bodies have ever been exhumed and analysed, and whilst goods from the period occasionally turn up on the Virginia and North Carolina coasts, it's hard to pin down whether they were specific to the Roanoke colony or the many other European settlements that dotted the eastern seaboard. The mystery continued to gain prominence in the 1800s due to the fantastical nature of the story. And if you love a good colonial mystery, this final point might annoy you. In a recent book published by Scott Dawson, along with the opinion of Croatoan descendants who still live in the Outer Banks area, it's suggested that the most obvious answer is probably the most reasonable. The settlers literally wrote down where they went on a tree, and the search party couldn't go to check it out because of a storm. Never mind the fact that years had passed with the settlers in an increasingly untenable position, and despite the disparity in expected living standards between the English and the Croatoan, you would have to be a suicidal fool to take the hardship and possible abandonment by your countrymen over readjusting to a life amongst the people who had unquestionably mastered survival in the American wilderness. Even Elizabethan-era humans wouldn't have been above doing everything possible to survive when faced with being abandoned in a harsh wilderness. So it's pretty stupid to expect that just because the Indians lived in a quote-unquote primitive manner, that the starving, desperate and doomed English settlers would prefer to either stay and die or relocate across uncharted wilderness a hundred miles north to Chesapeake. So that concludes the story of Roanoke. We'll be returning to English America in a few episodes time to talk about the colonization of Jamestown, the first successful English settlement in America. But before we get to that, there's a couple of things we're going to do. Next time, we are going to be at episode 10, which is our second anthology episode. I have had a request from a listener to discuss Leif Erikson and the Norse explorations of Vinland in a bit more detail. And I briefly made mention of this in episode 1, so I'll try and dig up some stuff on that. Then, once we get back into the timeline, we're actually going to jump back a couple years because we need to talk about the French Wars of Religion. I've been promising an episode about the rise of Protestantism in Europe for a while now, and I think it's about time we got that done. If you like the podcast and want to keep up to date with release schedules, ask questions or suggest future topics, or just get involved, then make sure to find us on Facebook at The Atlantic World. But until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>